morning. Let me echo what I've uh, heard already. It's really good to see you guys. Uh, great to be back together and uh, miss seeing you over the last couple Sundays. Uh, I want to invite uh, whatever happened to my slide. I don't know what happened to my... Uh, it's washed out or something? Oh, really? All right, well, we'll, uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, I've still got a Bible, so we'll be, we'll be all right. Uh, I'm going to invite you to begin in two places. So first of all, open to Genesis chapter 16. We'll come back to this in just a minute. And once you find Genesis 16, I want to invite you to turn over to Psalm 139. And I want to start there. As uh, Pastor Brian mentioned, this is Sanctity. Well, actually, last Sunday was officially Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We've postponed it a week. We uh, set this week aside every year uh, because it is important to say and uh, proclaim uh, the sacredness of each human life. It's uh, something we can't uh, skip over. Uh, so uh, we want to pause today and... Uh, declare the importance of each human life. Beginning with Psalm 139, verse 13, perhaps one of the most central and important passages on the sanctity of human life in the Word of God. Not the only one, of course, but it is an important one. So let me begin here, and then I'll open us in prayer. Uh, David declares, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made, being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. This is the holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he bless this. And let's ask for his help as we look into his word this morning. Strengthen us, Christ Jesus, as we uh, pause to look at this vital topic from your word that we have just read about, that your word declares from Psalm 139. Strengthen us with your grace. Encourage us. Challenge us, Christ Jesus. Uh, equip our minds to oppose uh, the evil that uh, takes place in our culture throughout, uh, and around the world as well. Equip us today, Jesus, to carry on the fight. We, I pray that you'd strengthen me, my mind and my heart and my voice to declare your truth. We pray your spirit would open our eyes to see your word. Jesus, we ask in your very precious name. Amen. So as we gather today, yesterday was the 49th anniversary of uh, the passing of Roe versus Wade. Uh, and as we mark this anniversary, this uh, terrible landmark date, 
uh, we can stop and praise the Lord that over this past year there have been genuine victories in the fight against abortion. Reasons to rejoice and praise the Lord. Uh, World Magazine reported uh, in a recent issue, Arkansas in March passed one of the strongest bills protecting even babies conceived through rape or incest with an exception if a pregnancy threatens a woman's life. Governor Asa Hutchinson acknowledged that the law defied Supreme Court precedent but said it is the intent of the legislation to set the stage for the Supreme Court overturning current case law. Further good news from the state level, World Magazine reported the pro-life law that made the biggest waves passed in Texas two months later. Using a controversial enforcement mechanism, it protects babies from abortion once they have a detectable heartbeat, typically at around six weeks of gestation. The law went live in September and reportedly halved the number of abortions in the state. Genuine victory, and we praise the Lord for those. While there are genuine reasons to celebrate, there have also been significant setbacks this year. Uh, the same article in World Magazine reports, a new pro-abortion White House administration at the beginning of 2020, 2021 ended four years of simple but important executive-level advances for the pro-life movement. President Joe Biden swiftly reversed many of former President Donald Trump's pro-life policies. For example, two days after his inauguration, President Biden released a statement pledging to codify a woman's right to abortion into law. That promise hasn't been fulfilled yet, but his administration has done plenty to chip away at protections for babies. Then in April, Biden's Food and Drug Administration dealt another blow, announcing it would not enforce the requirement for providers to dispense the abortion pill in person. That opened the floodgates for pro-abortion websites to continue sending abortive drugs to women through the mail. Biden's administration in the following months continued to publicize its stance on abortion, releasing in June a $6 trillion budget proposal without the Hyde Amendment, a long-standing measure keeping taxpayer money from funding the abortion industry. <coughs> what this means for you and me really is quite simple. It means that the fight to end abortion must continue. We must continue to wage war against the throwaway culture that is so prevalent in the United States and even across the world. We must continue to pray and to give and to speak out and to oppose the evil that abortion is. I don't use that word to uh, sound melodramatic. I don't attach the word evil uh, to abortion to attempt to stir your feelings or manipulate you in some way. It is that abortion is 
genuinely evil. Despite how uh, Planned Parenthood has attempted to tone down abortion, a woman's right to choose, a woman's right to her own body, through other vocabulary like that, uh, I maintain, and I believe the Word of God maintains, that abortion is a genuine evil. A wicked, wicked thing, well deserving of the adjective evil. There are four reasons that abortion is evil. Four reasons why abortion is evil. And I'll try to make these clear uh, to you this morning. The first reason that abortion is evil is because God creates each life in the womb. Yes? I'm on back here. There you go. Thank you. Uh, because God creates each life in the womb. The conception of life in the womb is not the result of chance, nor is it merely the result of the, quote, reproductive process. Each human life originates from God. Uh, I, I'd like to begin here in the book of Genesis, which I asked you to turn to uh, just a moment ago, and simply point you to what the Word of God says, that when life is created in the womb, it is God who does it. Consider pulling a Bible from the chair in front of you uh, this morning if you're used to using your device. Uh, I'm going to flip this to several passages to support this idea. Really would love for you to follow along. But let's begin in Genesis chapter 16 and notice in these passages who is responsible for conception. Genesis 16.1 begins, Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. To give you some context of what's taking place in the previous chapter, the Lord had appeared to Abraham and directed his attention to the night sky and promised him, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. There was one glaring problem with God's statement in that Abraham had no children. And what we're reading in chapter 16 is Sarah hatching a plot for Abraham to have children through her servant Hagar. Notice what Sarah says about conception, though, in verse 2. Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, this is not some superstitious attachment of conception to the activity of God. Uh, Sarah is stating truth that God is responsible for creating life in the womb. If you would follow me over a page or two to the right to chapter 17, verse uh, 15, uh, let me read 
what takes place there. This is a little later in the story of Abraham and Sarah. But look at uh, Genesis 17, 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Here God explicitly declares that he is responsible for the formation of life in the womb. He is the one who forms life. Just a page or two to the right now, and I'll ask you to slide over to chapter 20. Still in the account of Abraham and Sarah, still in the narrative surrounding uh, the patriarch Abraham, again later in their uh, accounts, we find Abraham and Sarah traveling in the southern region of Israel where a man named Abimelech was king. And fearing for his life, Abraham, as he's done already, attempts to pass Sarah off as his sister. Uh, but the Lord spoke to Abimelech in a dream, warning him to return Sarah to Abraham. And toward the end of this, this account, we read in verse 17, chapter 20, verse 17, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech, because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Again, note, friend, God controls life in the womb. Uh, if you've heard of the phrase, beating a dead horse, you will know nothing about it till I am through with this theme. Flip over to chapter 25 with me. Chapter 25, we encounter the uh, narrative of Isaac and Rebekah, uh, another patriarch. And as we encounter this, we find Rebekah, Isaac's wife, unable to conceive. And Isaac prays for her, uh, beginning in chapter 25, verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, Conceive Very simple but clear cause and effect relationship between the first half and the second half of this verse. The Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca conceived. If you would, a few more chapters over to the right, chapter 30. Uh, this time uh, we come to the uh, very colorful account of uh, Rachel and Leah, uh, Jacob's uh, two wives, uh, Genesis uh, uh, 30, let's begin in Genesis 29, verse 31. This uh, describes what happens with uh, Jacob's wife, Leah. Uh, God, God's word says in 29, 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. You recall Rachel, the favored wife, and you can read what happens to her over in the next chapter, chapter 30, verse 22. If you'd flip a page, it says, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her 
and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. What have we seen so far? Again and again, and, and I've, I've gone through these purposefully, so you can see uh, that again and again we see a God-centered view of pregnancy. It is God who causes women to conceive and become pregnant. It's God who creates life in the womb every time. Now, I want to jump ahead to another period of Israel's history. And I want to, uh, want to take you to the period of Israel's judges. So if you would now flip further to the right to the book of Ruth. After the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Joshua judges and then the book of Ruth. We'll return here, Lord willing, next Lord's Day uh, to the book of Ruth. But if you'd look, uh, turn to Ruth chapter 4 and verse 13. Again, you might be aware that uh, Ruth was a foreigner to Israel. She's from the country of Moab. Uh, a significant portion of this account is, is the love story that develops between Ruth and a man named Boaz, and we'll look at this further uh, in the next week or so. But we get to chapter 4, and uh, specifically verse 13, and just note the clarity that this verse gives us. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son with crystal clarity. The author explicitly states again, God creates life in the womb. Across the page, we see the account of a woman named Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, just uh, just a, a few verses uh, further ahead in Israel's history. Uh, Hannah was the favorite wife of a man named Elkanah. Uh, and we see what happens to her in verse 5 of chapter 1, 1 Samuel, excuse me, 1 Samuel 1, 5, 1 Samuel 1, 5. But to Hannah, uh, El, uh, Elkanah gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Uh, Hannah, you might recall, enters the house of the Lord, prays for a son, verse 20 of uh, this chapter reveals the answer. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. God creates life in the womb. Uh, moving from the historical books, let's go to the poetic books now. And if you would turn further to the right, to the book of Job, and turn with me to Job chapter 31. Remember Job is in the midst of a horrific ordeal. Job is in the midst of a horrific ordeal. Uh, and in uh, the middle of an appeal to the Lord... Job makes a remarkable statement about conception in chapter 31, verse 15. Did not he who made me in the womb make him, 
his servant, his uh, manservant or maidservant? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? The testimony is clear. God creates life in the womb. This is repeated by a young man named Elihu in chapter 33. Elihu, one of the faithful witnesses to God's work in Job's life, uh, says this in verse 4 of chapter 33. The Spirit of the Lord has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives my life gives me life and and then in the next poetic book ahead we come to this passage that we have already noticed uh once or twice today uh psalm 139:13 for you formed my inward parts you knitted me together in my mother's womb as we go on we come to the book of ecclesiastes And you can see this behind me. That just as you do not know, King Solomon uh, testifies, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Solomon testifying to us that both the wind and life in the womb are the work of God. Finally, from the prophet Isaiah uh, says in Isaiah 43, 6, uh, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So, why all these passages? I simply want you to see and hear with your own two eyes the consistent and overwhelming testimony of God's Word that God creates life. God creates each life in the womb. John MacArthur stated it like this, God is the power behind conception. Every life that begins, begins because God has foreordained that life to begin. Conception is not the result of the reproductive process. Uh, How our world, how science refers to it, that unbiblical phrase removes God from the events of life in the womb. I want you to hear Uh, Dr. Sproul explain this point of view. He says, Our culture has been heavily influenced by the pagan view that nature operates according to fixed independent laws as if the universe were an impersonal machine that somehow came together through chance. There is the law of gravity, the laws of thermodynamics, and other powers that keep everything operating. There's an infrastructure to the universe that makes it continue. However, the biblical view is that there could not be a universe in the first place apart from the divine act of creation. And when God created the universe, he did not step out of the picture and let it operate on its own. That's how we operate, is it not? Wasn't that not taught what we were taught in school? 
It's worse than that, actually. We, we were taught that God didn't even begin, it, uh, begin creation. But so many Christian students think that, yes, I, I acknowledge that God created the world, but following that, he has nothing to do with it. There are weather systems and laws of nature. But that's simply not true. I've, I've stopped. Let me finish what Dr. Sproul says. What we call the laws of nature merely reflect the normal way in which God sustains or governs the natural world. Perhaps the most wicked concept that has captured the minds of modern people is the belief that the universe operates by chance. That is the depth of foolishness. Dr. Spruill says. All this to say that conception is no mere process, but the purposeful orchestration of Almighty God in the womb. Scripture reveals that God creates each life in the womb. The implications are important and far-reaching. Uh, this means that pregnancy is the result of God's activity and not simply sexual activity. Even if the circumstances surrounding the pregnancy were sinful, it was God who ultimately created that life in the womb. That child, however it was conceived, is his doing. There's another uh, implication. And this, uh, this principle that God creates each life in the womb also answers the question about abortion in the case of rape and incense. Let me just pause and acknowledge the horrific awful nature of rape and incest. But if this is true, that God creates each life in the womb, as horrific as those circumstances are, if a life is conceived through those tragedies, it is because God put it there. It is because God put it there. So, uh, why is abortion evil? And why must we continue to oppose it? Why must we carry on the fight? Is because God creates each life in the womb. There's another reason I want you to see this morning uh, as we uh, uh, continue. Uh, the second reason we continue to oppose abortion. The second reason that we call abortion evil is because God creates each life in His image. When God creates life in the womb, that life is created in His image and, and bears His likeness. If you would now, I'm going to uh, turn back all the way to Genesis chapter 1. And I want to point this out from Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Please uh, follow me there so you can see this important statement about uh, his image. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, 
Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. We in this account, we read something that distinguishes humankind from the rest of creation. Both male and female were created in the image of God. In other words, there is some way in which every human being is like God. Notice that the rest of creation does not possess this. Animals, for example, are not made in the image of God no matter how hard you try to press human characteristics on animals, they are not made in the image of God. Verse 26 says, uh, let us make man in our image. That's a generic word for mankind or humankind, if you prefer. Humans are made in God's image and nothing else in creation. Verse 27 then adds that both male and female were created in the image of God. So, so the glaring question this raises uh, is what does it mean to be created in the image of God? In what way are you and I like God? And theologians have been offering opinions on this important question, important but difficult question uh, for centuries. Let me summarize and just mention three things involved in being created in the image of God. First, it means that you and I have rational souls. Like God, you and I are created with a soul or a spirit. We are personal, self-conscious beings. We possess the ability to think feel, and decide. John MacArthur notes, man was created in the moral, mental, and spiritual image of God. He was created with intellect, will, emotion, and knowledge. Uh, being created in the image of God means we have rational souls. Second, being created in his image uh, means that we are summoned to reflect his character. We are responsible to mirror and reflect His holiness to others. Our, our ability to do this was lost uh, in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve fell into sin. It is now being gradually restored through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul calls us to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in, the right, in true righteousness and holiness. Being created in His image means that we are called to reflect His character. And thirdly, and again, this is a merely a summary, we rule His creation. Uh, like God, we have a measure of sovereignty in the world. We have the task of ruling His creation responsibly. Again, John MacArthur says, God gave man dominion over all the created world to care for according to his divine plan. Much more could be said uh, about how man is created in the image of God. These are the uh, essentials, the bare bones of what it means. And, and this is the reason why taking a human life is such a monstrous crime.
This is why God requires the death penalty for each person who commits murder. Uh, this is made evident to us in Genesis chapter 9. Uh, the Lord, uh, in his, the middle of his co covenant with Noah, says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning, and from every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Uh, here, this underlined phrase, we see again uh, why the Lord requires a life for a life. This last phrase tells us because each human is an image bearer. And man must shed the life of another man who commits murder. At uh, the base of the Teton Mountains in Wyoming lies Jackson Lake. And if you can see the slide behind me, sometimes early in the morning the lake perfectly reflects uh, the Tetons on the surface uh, of the water, mirrored uh, magnificently. But if a slight wind rises or if you skipped a stone across the lake, watch the surface of the water, the image is then blurred. And this is what's happened uh, when man fell into sin. You can still see white on the water. There is still some fuzzy image of the Tetons on the surface of the lake, but it is distorted. And this is, this is what has happened. Uh, man in his fallen state bears a distorted and marred image, but still nonetheless bears the image of God. This is the second reason why we must oppose abortion. And this is the second reason why abortion is an evil thing, because God creates each life in His image. He creates life in the womb. He, um, uh, life in the womb is, is not merely the result of the reproductive process. That life was ordered by God. God creates, secondly, each life in His image. Each human life is stamped with His image and is an image bearer of the Lord God. This might be difficult to swallow given the, the hideous things people do, but Scripture declares that man is created in the image of God. Let me give you a third reason why we oppose, why we must oppose, why we must continue to oppose the evil of abortion. And that's because God creates each life with its own unique design. And this also means your life. It is created with its own unique design. He not only creates life in the womb, stamps it with His image, he designs everything having to do with that life. Yes, He designs everything having to do with that life. Uh, I'd like to turn uh, back to the book of Job, this time to Job chapter 10, uh, where I can uh, point this out to you. 
Job chapter 10. Again, Job's faith being tested. And in the middle of Job chapter 10, uh, my Bible has the title, Job continues a plea to God. In the middle of this plea to God, in, in Job chapter 10, uh, verse 8, Job begins, Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. If you'll glance back to verse 8, and it's really just that first phrase of verse 8, this whole passage, Job describes the work of God in making him, but verse 8 your hands fashioned and made me. More literally, you could translate, your hands fashioned and made me roundabout. Uh, your hands fashioned and made me altogether. Uh, you've not only formed my life in the womb, Job is saying, uh, you have designed everything about my life. Again, it's not that God starts things out and that lets chemistry and environment take over. That's why you are the way you are. No, he designs everything about you. And we can go further to describe some specific things, three spe specific things that he designed about you. God designs every, uh, every human life with a soul. Uh, God forms the soul of every human being. Zechariah 12.1, we see this stated, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. According to his word, God designs everything about each life, including the soul. Uh, that God designs everything also means that he designs Come on, the emotions. Uh, God designs the emotional makeup of each human life. And let me point to this verse yet once more. Psalm 139.13 For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. The, the phrase inward parts, or it might be inmost being in your translation, is the Hebrew word for kidneys. You formed my kidneys. In the Hebrew world, the point of this, uh, the kidneys were the place where they believed emotions and affections came from. They believed they came from the lower organs. It's just as sometimes you and I say, I love you with all my heart, when the heart does not produce any emotion at all. It, it pumps blood through our bodies. Uh, in the Hebrew world, it was about 12 inches lower, uh, and they believed that emotions were produced uh, from the viscera of the internal organs of man. And so when David says, you formed my kidneys, he's saying that God designed the way that his emotions responded to things. It's really... A profound statement. 
sometimes we use the phrase, that's the way God wired me. There's a lot more truth in that statement according to this verse than we sometimes think. Our emotional makeup, it's sometimes called our temperament. It's not something imprinted on us by our home of origin. No doubt that contributes. But your temperament is given by God himself. You formed my kidneys, my emotional makeup. Again, this doesn't mean that when we fly into a rage, we can let it go. Well, that's the way God made me. Of course, we bring those things under the control of God's Spirit. But maybe you feel things more than other people feel things. Well, that's, that's because that's, God made you that way. And you tend to be not so feeling, a little bit more clinical and rational and logical and and uh, that's because God made you that way. And, you know, that thing that drives you crazy about your spouse. And, whoa! Well, that's because God has wired, hardwired that into her being. Again, we don't make excuses for our sin nature. We bring these things under the control of God's Spirit. God designs everything about human life, including your emotional makeup. He designs each human soul, the emotions. And this next one is more dramatic still. That God designs everything means further that He designs our abilities and disabilities physical talents as well as physical handicaps both come as a result of God's design. This is, this is made clear and it is extraordinarily clear in Exodus chapter 4. I don't know if you recall the context of that chapter. I'm going to turn there and, and read it. Perhaps you'd be interested in, in reading this uh, for what it tells us about God's uh, design of each human life, it's, it's simply profound. Uh, again, God has summoned Moses, uh, called him, and sent him to deliver Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. And what follows are uh, Moses' excuses. And in the middle of these excuses, we read something that really is, is quite staggering. So Exodus 4, beginning in verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. And so, because of that phrase, many people for decades believed Moses had a stuttering problem. Um, that is probably not the case. Uh, Moses' statement probably means he cannot think on his feet. He is not quick on his feet. Uh, he gets embarrassed when he has to, you know, come up with an answer on the spot. I, I'm slow of speech and, and of tongue. 
Uh, we might say uh, he's a process thinker, and some of you are like that. Someone get in a debate with someone, and you feel like a, a, a fool and no seconds flat because of their ability to wrap you around their finger, and you don't know what to say. This is kind of what Moses is saying here. I, what am I going to, you know, I'll, I'll be at a loss for words, Lord. I, I can't think on my feet. And then look at verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Wow. It's as if God is telling Moses, You think I don't know? Oh, I didn't realize that about you, Moses. Duh, I created you. It's, the word duh, of course, is not appropriate, probably for, but it comes with that force. Who has made man's mouth, who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? so significant to see that that thing that you think holds you back the thing that uh, maybe keeps you from serving the lord that that thing you agonize over it is it is not part of you by accident it's not part of you because god is cruel it's his design your children are designed by Him. All their quirks and talents are designed by Him. Your quirks and talents are all designed by Him. Why would God do something like this? I mean, we read this list, and, and in, in my era, growing up, uh, we would call these birth defects. We don't call them that anymore. It's not politically correct. Why would God do that? Why would God give somebody a disability? Why would God give someone a severe disability at that? What possible good can come from that? Well, of course, we, we don't know the mind of God. And to insert ourselves and to suggest things, we begin to put ourselves in the place of God, and we certainly don't want to do that. But we do know this that God designs each human the way he does for his own glory. And that is clear. And it, it is made clear by Christ in John chapter 9. Uh, John chapter 9, the account of the man born blind. Let me read the first three verses of John 9 to you. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And again, what in my childhood would be referred to as a birth defect. Why did God do that? It's not kind of Him, is it? it? It is part of His plan. Look at what follows. And His disciples asked Him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The common thought was that anything like that was caused by sin in the life of the parents or the child. Jesus answered in verse 3, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
Moses, I know you can't think on your feet. I, I know you're a process thinker. I know you can't come up with it on the spot in front of Pharaoh. You're not a good talker. Uh, you can't think off the top of your head, but I designed you that way so that my works might be put on display in you and that I might be glorified by you. This is the way it is with you and me and our children and uh, others around us. God designs each human life, gives it a soul, uh, gives it its emotional makeup, and gives it abilities and disabilities. And so Paul uses this word in Ephesians 2.8, uh, and, and 2, 8, 9, and 10. It's really profound. Uh, we know the first two verses well, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We hear that salvation is God's doing. But verse 10, we don't often quote together with these. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with them. The, the word uh, Paul uses, workmanship, is the term poema. And can be translated, we are his work of art. We are his masterpiece, so to speak. <coughs> Excuse me. Friend, when it's not merely that God uh, creates life in the womb, it's not merely that God creates life in his image, it's that God further creates each life with its own unique design. And this is why I call abortion evil. Because God has designed that life. Some of us don't like the way God designed us. Uh, Everybody in your house has heard you complain about it. And if this is true of you, we need to hear what Isaiah 45, uh, I believe it's Isaiah 46, 9, uh, 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or, your work has no handles. And Isaiah is writing to Israel, uh, Israel who is uncomfortable with God's plan for their nation. And I, uh, Israel is saying, why this, Lord? And I, Isaiah is stupefied at their arrogance. What a clay pot say to its maker, why did you make me like this? I, Isaiah is saying, this is unthinkable. The potter created the pot for his own purpose, not the pot's purpose. And we know that our purpose is to bring glory to the potter who made us. <coughs> this forces us to view our disabilities and our hair color and everything in a biblical and God-centered way. 
When we hear that God has designed everything about us, our response hopefully should be more along the lines of David, uh, who says in Psalm 139, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. That God creates us with our own unique design should humble us and encourage us to submit to his plan as the potter and stop saying, God, I hate this handle that you've put on me. Uh, I hate the lid you've given me. Uh, why am I blue? Uh, things related to that. God creates each life with its own unique design. There's one last reason uh, why we must continue the fight not only does God create each life with its own unique design, He creates each life with its own unique purpose. Uh, abortion is a wicked, wicked thing because God creates each life with its own unique purpose. And we see this, again, throughout Scripture. Uh, first in the life of Isaiah the prophet, and now the Lord says, He uh, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. Isaiah's life was given a distinct purpose in the life of uh, the nation Israel to, uh, to restore them to the Lord. And then we saw this in the prophet uh, Jeremiah in our scripture reading today. Uh, the Lord uh, said to Jeremiah, Now the word of the Lord came to me. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah, uh, his life was given a, a unique purpose from the womb. To serve as a prophet like Isaiah. Uh, we see this in the life of John the Baptist. Uh, Gabriel, uh, Gabriel appears to Zechariah and, and says, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Uh, John was set apart to uh, serve the Lord and prepare Israel for their Messiah. Paul says something similar uh, to this as well in Galatians 1.15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born. Uh, what do these verses uh, signify? Uh, these accounts of God assigning these men a specific purpose in their existence, that, that God assigns each life with its own unique uh, reason for existence. Even before birth, God has a purpose and design for each human being. And uh, when we abort that life, we cut off what God has intended to bring about. As an example, uh, these case studies ask the question, would you consider abortion in any of the following situations? There's a poor pastor and wife who are, who are extremely impoverished. They already have 14 children, and now she finds out that she's pregnant with the 15. They live in tremendous poverty, 
Considering their poverty and the ex excessive world population, would you consider recommending an abortion to this couple? Another couple, the father is extremely sick, the mother has tuberculosis. They have four children. The first child is blind, the second died in infancy, the third is deaf, the fourth also has tuberculosis. And she finds she is again pregnant. Given their extremities, would you consider recommending an abortion to them? A white man has raped a 13-year-old black girl, and she has become pregnant. If you were her parents, would you consider recommending an abortion? In the fourth case, a teenage girl has become pregnant, and she is not married. Her fiancé is not the father of the baby, and he is gravely concerned. Would you recommend an abortion to that young couple? If you said yes to the first case, you would have aborted John Wesley, one of the great reformers and evangelists of the 19th century. If you said yes to the second scenario, you would have, have aborted Ludwig von Beethoven, one of the world's greatest composers. If you said yes to the third case, you would have aborted Ethel Waters, the great black gospel singer who thrilled audiences for many years at Billy Graham crusades around the world. And if you said yes to the fourth case, you would have, in fact, aborted Jesus Christ. Abortion is a great evil because God creates each life with its own unique purpose. So we must continue to pray and to give and to speak out and to oppose the evil of abortion. It is a wicked thing because every pregnancy is the result of God's direct involvement. And we've seen four reasons uh, why it is such a wicked thing. Because, because God creates each life in the womb. God creates each life in His image. God creates each life with its own unique design. And God creates each life with its own unique purpose. Let me just make... Uh, uh, an application or two as we close today. I realize that for some of those who have experienced abortion firsthand, this is a difficult message to hear. Uh, but the glorious good news of the gospel is that Jesus paid for sin on the cross. And by turning from our sin and relying on His payment, we can be cleansed from every unrighteous act we have ever committed. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 reveals this truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The glorious good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ cleanses us from every unrighteous act we've ever committed, including, of course, abortion. Another application is that for many of us here today, these verses force us to rethink the way we view the world. And let me press this truth home to you if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. God did not create the world and then step back to let it run on its own. He is intimately involved in world events and in every detail of your life. Every detail of your life. It's not just pregnancy and conception. He is involved in every detail of your life right now. This is what His Word teaches This is what we'll see next Lord's Day in the book of Ruth. The Word of God compels us to a view of life in the world that has God at the center. Do we understand all that happens? By no means. It does not mean that everything is pleasant. Everything is under His divine control. God is at the center of every detail of our lives. I realize many of you hold that view. Uh, And so the application for you, if you're already on board with this worldview, this today's message hopefully compels you to live that out. Uh, with God at the center of everything, but further and more important, to instill that worldview in the life of your children and your grandchildren. You know, things don't just happen. Things don't just happen, son. Everything that takes place, including this bad thing, God allowed that to occur that his name might be glorified. How will he glorify his name in that, Dad? Well, son, I'm not sure, but he's promised to do it. And we have to trust him until he does. If we have God at the center of our worldview, we are compelled to pass this on to our children and our grandchildren. Let me conclude in prayer. Jesus, cause your word to bear fruit in us. Let us see the truth, Lord God, that you are gloriously and intimately involved in every single detail of our lives, including conception, including uh, our abilities and disabilities. God, you have designed us. May we declare that your works are wonderful. May we uh, not question how you have formed us, You are the potter who designs things in your good pleasure for your own glory. Savior, help us to continue the fight. Please bring abortion to an end in this nation and across the world. Accomplish this, please, in our lifetimes. We ask, Savior, in your name. Amen.